Welcome to the Sustainable Nano Podcast. I'm your host, Miriam Krauss. Uh, this episode, I'm very excited to have a guest interviewer who did the uh, the main part of the episode. Uh, do you want to introduce yourself briefly? Yeah, my name is Stephanie Mitchell, and I'm a graduate student in the Center for Sustainable Nanotechnology, and I work at the University of Minnesota. Great. So you did an interview with Dr. Richard Thompson. Do you want to tell us a little bit about how like your research that you do relates to what he was talking about? Yeah, so it was really interesting for me to think about plastics in the environment instead of metals in the environment, because I spend all day long thinking about, well, not all day long, but most <laughs> of my day thinking about how the metals and nanoparticles that I work with interact with bacteria. And instead of that, uh, Professor Richard Thompson works about how plastics kind of more globally affect marine life and the marine environment. So this was a brand new perspective for me that I hadn't really considered before. Yeah, cool. So um, are there ways that his research actually kind of overlap with Center for Sustainable Nanotechnology, or was it just a totally new area? Yeah, definitely. So I think one of the most interesting statistics that he said was that around 50% of debris found on beaches was single-use items. So that's people making a choice not to recycle their unwanted items and just leaving them on the beach. And so I think a lot of that has to do with us being able to disseminate information as scientists to the people who these products concern. So even nanotechnology, a lot of people might not even know that there are nanoparticles or things in the products that they use or nanoparticles in their batteries or any number of products. So they might not even understand what they're doing to the environment to make an impact with their nanoparticles. So I think we really need to consider how we share this information with people who aren't necessarily well-versed in a lot of the science we do. And then additionally, a big thing we consider at the Center for Sustainable Nanotechnology is how to design nanoparticles that are benign to the environment. And Mm -hmm. Professor Thompson also mentioned something similar, but he calls it considering the end of lives of plastics. So that's basically how recyclable a plastic is. So even if you have like an end of use, something that is only a single use, like a one-time plastic water bottle or like packaging or something, thinking about what happens to it after you use it. Yeah, and so that's exactly what we try to do at the center. We know these nanoparticles, whether on purpose or accidental, are eventually going to be in the environment somehow. So making sure that when they do end up in the environment, they're not hazardous to the native life of an environment. So whether that's bacteria or fish or water fleas, we need to make sure that the things we design aren't hazardous. So the same thing can be said of plastics, making sure that we design them so they're recyclable, not because they're necessarily pretty and they'll sell better. So that's a lot to do with us as a consumer. We need to make that a priority. Instead of having a pretty packaging, we should have something that can be reused and recycled so it's not dangerous to the environment. Mm -hmm. So although these are two different areas of study, the research and goals of the research are very similar, trying to design sustainable and reusable and not hazardous materials. Mm-hmm. I think that's that's a great introduction, so here's the actual interview. All right, well, thank you for taking time out of your busy day to meet with us. So can you just introduce yourself for our listeners first? So I'm Richard Thompson. I'm Professor of Marine Biology at Plymouth University in the UK. All right, thank you. So you're here visiting the University of Minnesota for the Center for Sustainable Polymers, uh, but we were able to take advantage of some of your time to ask you a couple of brief questions. So the first question is, um, so you are a marine biologist by trade, so how did you get interested in plastics? Was that just something you noticed 
in your everyday research and that inspired you to begin here? So when I was a graduate student, I was running experiments uh, on shorelines around the UK and I was finding that litter was accumulating in those experiments. It was getting caught up in them and the main things that I found were, were plastic litter and that certainly got me interested but then I helped again while I was a graduate student I helped with voluntary beach cleaning initiatives by the Marine Conservation Society in the UK and because I was suppose I was training to be a scientist I got interested in the data that the volunteers were collecting and I, and I realized that what tended to happen during these beach cleans was that volunteers particularly some of the kids that had a lot of passion and, and energy for it were going for what I would call large trophy items a really big tire an enormous fishing net a fishing crate and actually what was happening because this data was being recorded and logged as the presence of litter but what was happening was those volunteers were walking over what struck me to be the most abundant items of litter which were very small pieces that were not being collected that were not being recorded so when I started uh, my career uh, as a as a professional scientist in university lecturing to other students I set some of them the challenge to see what was the smallest piece of litter they could find on a beach near to our lab and straight away they came back with sand samples and looking down the microscope we found microscopic pieces of plastic there some of them smaller than the grains of sand themselves and I guess that's what really got me interested in the topic in the first place that was our first paper uh, on, on this issue which was published in 2004 in the journal Science. So you've talked a lot about plastic as beach waste, but it's accumulating in other areas of the ocean as well. It's accumulating uh, right across ocean systems on shorelines at the sea surface and in the deep sea. But of course, it's also accumulating in rivers, in lakes uh, and on land as well. Well, your visit is very timely as the issue of plastic microbeads in cosmetics has been in the news recently due to the signing of the Microbead Free Waters Act. These are popular as exfoliants in many face washes, but can you explain why they're now being banned in many products? So I think there's, there's a variety of reasons there. Um, it's very clear now that there are substantial quantities of microbeads that are used in some products. Uh, one of our recent papers from Plymouth showed that a single container of some cosmetics could have over three million plastic particles. And it's also fairly clear that a good number of those will um, pass down as drain and escape sewage treatment and then enter the environment, whether that's freshwater, rivers, or the sea. Some will be captured by sewage treatment, but of course, one of the things that happens with the resultant sewage sludge is that it's often returned to the land effectively as a fertilizer. So these microbeads are clearly entering the environment. There's cause for concern about the environmental consequences because these small particles, we're talking about pieces about a quarter of a millimetre in size, can be ingested by a wide range of organisms. And there's some evidence of the potential for physical effects from ingestion of small particles of plastic of that size. Not specifically work with microbeads, but work with similar sized uh, spherical particles. But I think you then have to look at that evidence and to take on board the fact that uh, plastics are persistent contaminants. They're going to accumulate in the environment year on year. And we already know there are a lot of unwanted sources of plastic debris. It's not really clear to me at least what the benefit to society is of having millions of small pieces of plastic in our cosmetics. So in my view, the balance of evidence from a policy perspective is when you weigh the evidence of concern for the environment, the fact that this is a persistent contaminant, and the lack of any clear benefit to society of having the beads there in the first place reaches a tipping point from a policy perspective. 
Yeah, so related to that, um, you mentioned how they will consistently accumulate in the environment. What's the idea behind self-destructible plastics? What are the advantages and disadvantages of these from a sustainability standpoint? So when you say self-destructible, I suppose you, what you're meaning is biodegradable yeah. um, plastics. Well, I think it depends entirely on the application. Um, of course, if you look at the principal benefits of plastics, why plastics have been such a success story over the last 50 years, well, that's because they're lightweight, they're inexpensive, and they're incredibly durable materials, materials that can be used to package food and drink as components in cars and aeroplanes. And so the very thing that they're not designed to self-destruct is actually one of their advantages. So I think it's then quite a challenge to design plastic items which will fulfill their life in service and not let you down on a day-to-day -day basis. And yet somehow, the minute they enter the environment as litter, they somehow know that it's time to self-destruct. So there's kind of conflicting drivers there that I, I think creates a, a, fairly, a fairly challenging set of circumstances, unless you're in control of the waste stream that they're going to enter. So if the plastic, the end-of-life plastic, is going to enter a managed waste system via composting, and you can control the temperature and the pH, then I think it might be appropriate to consider um, degradable polymers as a, as a means of, of disposal. But I don't see degradable polymers as being a solution to the issue of accumulation of litter in the environment. Hmm. So along the same lines, one of the things you talked about last night was considering the end of life hmm. when designing new products. Can you explain what this means? So I think that the key uh, point really to long-term sustainable use of, of plastics is to make sure that at the design stage when we're considering uh, a product, a new product, we think not only about the, the utility, the benefits it's going to bring to society, we also of course think about how attractive it is. Is it going to sell readily? Are people going to want it? But at the same time we must think about what the fate is at the end of the lifetime of that product, how it can be disposed of in such a way to have minimal uh, environmental consequences. And of course the ideal pathway would be to recycle end-of-life plastics so that at the end of a, a lifetime for an item it can actually be recycled into new plastics and that reduces our reliance on non-renewable oil and gas as a, as a carbon source for manufacturing plastics. So an example that, that I see um, in many supermarkets around the world actually one of our most recyclable polymers is is PET uh, it's the polymer that most recyclers are really keen to have because they can generate recycled products from it they can turn it to a profit and yet the presence of colorings in PET drink bottles actually renders one of our most recyclable polymers unrecyclable because it reduces the value in the recycling stream by up to 80 percent so that makes it not economic for recyclers to to recycle that, that material. So simply the presence of a colouring can completely tip the balance for one of our most recyclable polymers. And to me, that's a clear in indication, if you like, of a lack of appropriate thought at the design stage for the end of life, because we've taken our most recyclable polymer and we've rendered it incompatible with recycling simply by introducing colourings which are not related to getting the drink safely to the consumer. They're purely associated with marketing. So both the Center for Sustainable Polymers and Center for Sustainable Nanotechnology have sustainability in our names. So obviously we as scientists and research centers care about the issue. But what about the general public? Because even if we have good waste management systems and try to create the most effective policy, a lot of it comes down to individual behavior. How can we inspire people, maybe even out there listening to this podcast, to make an effort to promote sustainability in their own lives? It's a very good question and, and I think to me the answer is that actually the responsibility lies with all of us. It lies right along the supply chain. It involves industry with appropriate design. 
It involves policy, perhaps with measures to introduce labelling to make it clear to consumers and major brand owners and stores what the environmental footprint of their packaging is. And then of course it relies on the consumers to then take the right steps. But you have to recognise that we've had 60 years of training for what is in essence a throwaway living. So it's hardly surprising that many consumers treat particularly single-use plastic items as something that has no value and is simply discarded. And of course some of that as a consequence ends up as litter in the environment. What we need to do is to reverse that 60 years of training for throwaway living so that consumers recognise that actually with appropriate design by industry these products do have a value that can be realised at the end of their lifetime and I think with that recognition will come a greater responsibility for the resource that's locked up in those plastic items and the potential for that resource to be recycled. Interesting, so do you have any suggestions for how people can easily be more sustainable with their plastics? Well, of course, you can try and choose plastic materials that you know can be locally recycled. Whether I mean, one of the main things that we find as items of litter in the environment is single-use plastic packaging. 40% of all plastic production goes into single-use items of packaging. So that's a particular area for focus. And, and certainly, uh, individuals can look to buy things that are packaged in a way that... that in a way, if you can actually reduce the quantity of plastic that you're using in the first place, then that's a good step. But let me stress there, I'm, I'm not anti-plastic at all. I think if the plastic can be recycled, it's a wonderful material. But you know, on their own, the consumers are not going to be able to solve this problem. We are going to need import at the design stage from industry to make sure that we're designing plastic products with the maximum potential for those products to be captured, the carbon to be captured at the end of the life cycle through recycling and then turned back into new product. Interesting. So what do you think is the biggest barrier to making this transition to cleaner and better plastics? I don't think there's any single uh, barrier. I think there's a number of steps that need to be taken and it's important that they're taken right the way along the supply chain. You know, Particularly if you think about um, plastic in, in, in rivers, in lakes and in the sea that the source of that plastic ultimately is from the land and it's the land where that plastic really needs to be appropriately disposed of at the end of its lifetime. So we need action along the supply chain on the land, we need action from policy to help to reinforce um, appropriate measures to ensure that plastics are designed, products are designed appropriately and that there's an end of life capture system in place and that there's an associated educational problem. The difficulty at the moment, because education is really important in this, is that if we just imply, if we just introduce education for the current system, then actually we're trying to educate people about a business model that, in my view, is broken. And that's to say we've got this outdated method of a linear use of resource from non-renewable oil and gas via short-lived applications, 300 million tonnes of plastic used every year, the majority in single-use applications, to waste. And we can't continue with that rapid use, that rapid linear use of resource. So education is going to be really important. But, but we need to educate about a, a revised system where we're capturing end-of-life plastics and letting them become new items again to reduce not only the waste that we generate, but also reduce our reliance on non-renewable carbon sources. I see. Well, thank you very much for your time. We really appreciate you talking with us. Thank you.
So that's it for our interview. Thank you so much, Stephanie, for uh, for doing that. I oh, hope yeah. you had a good time. It was a nice time. Yeah. So um, is there anything that, like, follow-up or things that you are, like, are you going to do anything differently or things that you learned from his talk or? I definitely consider how much I use plastic water bottles now, even if they're just offered to me at an event. I'll try to remember to, like, bring my own mug down so I don't use these. And I always try to remember to bring my reusable grocery bags mm-hmm. places But I think it's just most important to realize if the recycling bin is a couple further feet down to just make the extra effort to walk Mm -hmm. further down the hallway to properly dispose of your things because they are recyclable for a reason. And if you put them in the trash, they're not regaining value when you do that. Right, right. Yeah, I was thinking the same thing about, yeah, just water bottles that are given away free or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, And I was thinking specifically with like, the microbeads, you know, you might not be littering on purpose, but now that we know that they're so persistent in the environment, like, it's not that they serve, I think Dr. Thompson is maybe a little bit dismissive about like, why do we even need these? And they are, there's a purpose for having them in the product, but there's other alternatives, right? Like exactly. oatmeal Just or whatever. Oatmeal, using like. a washcloth if you need a scrub, and there are like pumice stones if you need mm-hmm. to exfoliate. So there are sustainable, reusable ways to exfoliate instead of using a product that already has microbeads in it. Yeah. And I think um, we put a link in the show notes to information about the ban, which I think it goes into effect in like July 2017 or something Mm -hmm. like that. But in the meantime, yeah, as consumers, we can... You can start making your transition now. Mm -hmm. That's right. Um, Yeah. So the only other thing I wanted to say was make sure we uh, thank the Center for Sustainable Polymers, which is our kind of sister center um, funded by the NSF that actually brought Dr. Thompson to the University of Minnesota. And for he this spent event. time with us instead. Yes, for a little exactly. Bit, which was really nice. <laughs> Stole him away for a, a quick interview. So, uh, yeah, I think that's it. Thank you so much. Perfect. Cool. Okay. All right. Awesome. Thank you. Okay. Just a couple more things here before we end. First, the issue of plastic pollution in the ocean has actually been in the news recently, uh, entirely independent of us making this podcast episode. We've linked to a couple of different stories in the show notes that I recommend you checking out. One of them is from CNN, uh, just about plastic kind of debris and litter in general in the ocean. But the other one is from The Atlantic by science writer Ed Yong. The headline is, Scientists Now Know Why Some Seabirds Eat So Much Plastic. So this is uh, addressing one question about why the pollution of plastic in the ocean is so bad. For, for the environment, specifically for birds. And the answer is it turns out that some species of birds, one of the scents that comes off of degrading plastic called dimethyl sulfide or DMS, smells like food to the birds. So they think that it's what they should be eating and that's why they eat it. So it's a really interesting article. Definitely recommend it. Like I said, we have linked to it on the show notes. So recommend you go check that out if you're curious to know more. We want to make sure that we thank the National Science Foundation for funding the Center for Sustainable Nanotechnology, which produces this podcast. We're very grateful for that. But we always have to have our disclaimer. All the opinions and views expressed on this podcast are, of course, those of the speakers and not necessarily those of the National Science Foundation. Want more Sustainable Nano? You can find our blog at sustainable-nano.com. All of our podcast episodes and show notes are available at sustainable-nano.com slash podcast. Or you can find more episodes and subscribe at iTunes or Stitcher. Uh, We're also on Science360 Radio. Um, Please come and say hi to us, either through our website or on Twitter or Facebook, where we are Sustainable Nano. We would love to hear from you. We want to know what do you think of the podcast so far? What do you want to hear from us in the future? All right, I think that's it. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.